Welcome to the November 30th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. On today's podcast, high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities in solitary bone plasmacytomas. For the first time, investigators shed light on the clinical value of cytogenetic assessments by fish in patients with this rare plasma cell disorder. Up next, complement activation in vasoocclusive pain episodes. In sickle cell mice, cold exposure induces complement activation and vasoocclusive pain crisis. Furthermore, targeting C5A generation inhibited those effects. Finally, exploring the genetics of platelet reactivity. Researchers report on a newly pioneered method for predicting platelet reactivity based on complete blood count data. They used this data to develop a genetic score that was associated with risk of thrombotic diseases. Let's go to our first research article, Impact of Cytogenetic Abnormalities on the Risk of Disease Progression in Solitary Bone Plasmacytomas. The first author is Yudit Yadav of Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Solitary plasmacytomas are rare malignancies, consisting of a single mass of clonal plasma cells arising from extramedullary sites or bone. The solitary bone plasmacytomas, or SBPs, commonly arise from sites such as the pelvis, ribs, skull, or spinal column, and have a propensity to progress to multiple myeloma. Beyond the isolated bone lesion, patients with SBP by definition have none of the other factors that indicate presence of multiple myeloma, namely anemia, hypercalcemia, and renal insufficiency. The typical treatment approach is fractionated radiation therapy administered to the plasmacytoma. Some patients undergo resection of the SBP prior to radiation therapy. Patients with SBP have a high risk of progression to multiple myeloma, even despite treatment. Approximately 60 to 80% or more will progress with multiple myeloma within 10 years. However, time to progression varies widely from months to years. Factors linked to shorter time to progression include presence of minimal marrow involvement, abnormal serum-free light chain ratio, high-grade angiogenesis in the plasmacytoma, and persistence of an M-spike after radiation treatment. Another interesting approach is to consider cytogenetic abnormalities by fluorescence in situ hybridization, or FISH. A few fish studies conducted in extramedullary plasmacytomas were negative for links between cytogenetics and risk of progression. But there haven't been any studies in solitary bone plasmacytomas looking at cytogenetics by fish. Assessing fish status in SBP is challenging due to the lack of or limited number of clonal plasma cells in the aspirate of the staging bone marrow examination. But procedures have been established to perform fish analyses on formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue making it more feasible to assess diagnostic biopsy samples. That helped spur Yadov and co-investigators to assess the association between cytogenetic abnormalities and myeloma progression in patients with newly diagnosed SBP. Their study included all patients diagnosed with biopsy-proven SBP at Mayo Clinic between January 2012 and July 2022. Baseline cytogenetics by FISH were available in 55 patients based on clonal plasma cells obtained from bone marrow examination or diagnostic biopsy of their SBP, or from archived paraffin-embedded tissue from the diagnostic biopsy of their SBP. 
The investigators risk stratified patients as having high-risk or non-high-risk cytogenetics. High-risk cytogenetics was defined as presence of 17P deletion, translocation 1416, translocation 414, or 1Q gain or amplification by fish in clonal plasma cells. Of 114 patients included in the study, 63, or 55%, progressed to multiple myeloma. The median time to progression was 37 months. Baseline FISH was available for 55 patients, 48%, of which 22, or 40%, were classified as having high-risk cytogenetics. With a median follow-up of 54 months, 91% of patients with high-risk cytogenetics progressed to multiple myeloma, compared to 49% of patients without high-risk cytogenetics. That difference was statistically significant, with a p-value of 0.0012. The median time to progression was just 8 months for patients with high-risk cytogenetics, compared to 42 months in patients without high-risk cytogenetics, with a p-value less than 0.001. Deletion 17P and 1Q abnormalities were the most common FISH abnormalities responsible for the short time to progression to multiple myeloma. Median time to progression was 6 months for patients with deletion 17P, 13 months for patients with an isolated gain in 1Q, and 41 months for patients without deletion 17P or gain in 1Q. In a multivariate model including high-risk cytogenetics by FISH, abnormal serum-free light-chain ratio at diagnosis, and minimal marrow involvement, high-risk cytogenetics was the only significant predictor for shorter time to progression to multiple myeloma. According to Leo Rasha from University Hospital of Würzburg and Niels Weinhold of Heidelberg University Clinic Hospital, Yadov and co-authors have provided the first evidence for the prognostic role of myeloma high-risk chromosomal abnormalities in SPP. In their commentary, Rasha and Weinhold say that the findings shift the paradigm of thinking on SBP. That is to say, SBP is currently considered a low-risk disease where radiation is curative in about half of all patients. But the current study shows that despite radiation therapy, patients presenting with high-risk cytogenetics have a significantly shorter median time to progression. Rasha and Weinhold suggest that in SBP, it appears that some clones can grow locally, without the ability to disseminate, but the presence of high-risk clones leads to early dissemination, causing multiple myeloma. Thus, there may be a group of patients who would benefit from prompt systemic treatment to prevent further-end organ damage. So, based on this article, high-risk cytogenetics is now a potential biomarker for clinical decision-making in SBP. The next article is titled, Cold Exposure Induces Vaso-Occlusion and Pain in Sickle Mice That Depend on Complement Activation. And the first author is Zalaya K. Ivey of the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Vaso-occlusive episodes cause severe pain in patients with sickle cell disease, or SCD. And many SCD patients report that cold temperatures can trigger vaso-occlusive episodes. Associations between painful vaso-occlusive episodes and cold temperatures have also been documented in epidemiologic studies, and in a paper published in Blood in 2020, both hot and cold stimulation caused microvascular constriction in SCD patients, suggesting that these stimuli contribute to decreased perfusion and delayed red cell transit time. The mechanisms linking vaso-occlusion and pain in SCD remain largely unexplored, 
However, it's known that vaso-occlusive events promote an ischemic reperfusion pathobiology that activates complement. That's true in animal models and in patients with SCD who have increased complement activation and elevated plasma levels of complement-derived fragments, including C5A. There is evidence that C5A and its cell membrane receptor, C5AR, have important functions in acute and chronic pain states, including postoperative wounds, incisional pain, and neuropathic pain after a spinal cord injury. Furthermore, administration of C5A and C3A sensitizes nociceptors, leading to hyperalgesia, and in models of neuropathic pain and inflammation, inhibiting complement activation has been shown to attenuate hyperalgesia. So in the present study, investigators explored the mechanistic link between vaso-occlusion and pain in SCD. More specifically, they hypothesized that signaling of C5A and C5AR contributes to pain in vaso-occlusive episodes. To test this hypothesis, they used cold to induce vaso-occlusive episodes in the town's sickle mouse model. Then they utilized complement inhibitors to see if vaso-occlusive episodes could be attenuated by reducing potential contributory complement factors. The town sickle mouse model was used as they exhibit pain and pathobiology features that are similar to what is observed in human patients with SCD. The researchers briefly exposed the mice to mildly cold temperatures, 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit, for one hour. Then they used a dorsal skin fold chamber to measure microvascular stasis, that is to say, vaso-occlusion. They used von Frey filaments attached to the paw to measure mechanical hyperalgesia, both in towns and in control mice. And they used immunoblots to measure relative levels of complement fragments in mouse plasma. Altogether, they found that following cold exposure, the town's mice had developed microvascular stasis and mechanical hyperalgesia that was dependent on complement activation. At one hour of cold exposure, microvascular stasis was 33% in the town's mice, compared with 11% for control mice, and just 1% for town's mice kept at room temperature. Cold also resulted in mechanical hyperalgesia. After cold exposure, the town's mice had a lower paw withdrawal threshold, indicating greater pain. Higher paw withdrawal thresholds were recorded for control mice and the town's mice at room temperature. Interestingly, cold-exposed town's mice had higher plasma levels of complement activation fragments BB and C5A than controls and room temperature town's mice. In addition, the adhesion molecules VCAM1 and ICAM1 were increased in the livers of cold-exposed town's mice, indicating an increase in pro-inflammatory NF-kappa-B activation. Finally, the investigators found that these cold exposure-related effects could be counteracted by targeting C5 or C5AR. First, they pre-treated town's mice with anti-C5 or anti-C5AR monoclonal antibodies prior to cold exposure. The infusions attenuated vaso-occlusion, mechanical hyperalgesia, complement activation, and liver inflammatory markers as compared to pre-treatment with control monoclonal antibody. The results of these experiments suggest that C5A may play a role in vaso-occlusion and pain during vaso-occlusive episodes. Moreover, they provide a potential rationale for the development of treatments for vaso-occlusive episodes based on complement inhibition. So will these findings be a cold comfort for patients with SCD? That's the title of a commentary on this study by Erica Sparkenbaugh and Jane Little of the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Sparkenbaugh and Little say this is a thought-provoking study. 
The results are revealing about the relationship between microvascular stasis, complement, and the systemic effects of cold exposure on pain and inflammation. And, they say, the findings may help us think about new approaches to sickle cell that extend beyond buttoning up one's overcoat. Ultimately, the commentary authors say, the work illustrates how profoundly the environment can affect people with SCD. If comfort and warmth benefit all chronically ill people, then in the case of those with SCD, the latter may literally be true. Our final article is A Signature of Platelet Reactivity in CBC Scattergrams Reveals Genetic Predictors of Thrombotic Disease Risk. The first author is Hippolyte Verdier of the Pasteur Institute in Paris, France. We know platelets play a beneficial role in hemostasis, but may also contribute to thrombosis and vessel occlusion that underlies acute coronary syndromes, ischemic stroke, and venous thromboembolic disease. Platelet activation can occur via mediators, including collagen, adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, thromboxane A2, and thrombin, and also by atherosclerotic plaque rupture, which triggers the coagulation cascade. One key strategy in thrombosis prevention is the use of drugs that block specific pathways to reduce platelet reactivity. Examples include clopidogrel, which inhibits ADP receptors, and aspirin, which prevents production of thromboxane A2. But platelet reactivity varies between individuals, and some inherited platelet disorders impair platelet reactivity, which increases risk of bleeding. Conversely, higher platelet reactivity may increase risk of thrombosis. So by measuring platelet reactivity, patients might be better risk stratified. The safety and efficacy of currently available treatments could be optimized, and novel drug targets might be developed based on pathways governing platelet activation. Unfortunately, measuring platelet reactivity can be challenging and complex. Typically, platelet response to stimulation is measured by techniques including light transmission agrigometry and alternately flow cytometry. Both of these methods are time-consuming and hard to standardize, and both require fresh citrated blood samples to be processed soon after venipuncture. That complexity has been a hurdle in studies looking at the genetics underlying platelet reactivity. Genome-wide association studies have identified a few loci associated with platelet reactivity, including those near-platelet-relevant genes such as GP6 and PAIR1. But the sample size of these studies has been limited, typically to less than 5,000 individuals, given the limitations of current measurement techniques. Verdier and co-authors sought to address this limitation by focusing on a different and widely available technology. Specifically, they used Sysmax XN hematology analyzers to generate complete blood count data, and used that to train a model to predict platelet reactivity. The Sysmex analyzer incorporates a miniaturized flow cytometer, spectrophotometer, and a device that measures cellular impedance. It generates a report including cell concentrations, cell volume distribution, and hemoglobin concentration, among other outputs. Verdier explored whether CBC scattergrams generated by the Sysmex instrument could be leveraged to study platelet reactivity. They trained models to predict platelet reactivity based on Sysmex data generated from 533 participants in the Cambridge Platelet Function Cohort. This approach had a modest ability to predict platelet reactivity. 
Next, they applied their trained model to predict platelet reactivity to ADP from SysMax data in 29,806 genotyped individuals from Interval, a previously reported randomized trial of UK blood donors. In this large cohort, the authors identified 20 genetic regions, including 21 variants associated with their predicted platelet reactivity phenotype. Only six of those 20 genetic regions had been previously linked to platelet reactivity in genome-wide association studies. Then the researchers developed a genetic score based on the 21 variants associated with predicted platelet reactivity. They computed the score for 384,059 participants in the UK Biobank study. They found that the genetic score was associated with both myocardial infarction and pulmonary embolism. Using Mendelian randomization analyses, they found that variations in platelet reactivity were causally associated with risks of coronary artery disease, stroke, and venous thromboembolism. According to investigators, this is the first study using genome-wide instrumental analyses to demonstrate the causality of platelet reactivity as a risk factor for cardiovascular events. In a commentary, Paul S. DeVries of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston describes this new method of predicting platelet reactivity as pioneering. In his commentary, he highlights that the 14 genetic regions predicting platelet reactivity that had not previously been implicated through genome-wide association studies include genes with plausible biological roles in platelet function. These include serpine 2 that encodes a potent thrombin inhibitor, as well as other genes such as PTPRC, GCSAML, and CalRN that are linked to platelet activation pathways. DeVries says these analyses highlight the importance of platelet function in thrombotic diseases. The association with coronary artery disease is especially notable, he adds, since the majority of genetic associations appear to be driven by atherosclerotic plaque development rather than the thrombotic response to plaque rupture. While the insights gleaned from this research article are impressive, DeVries concludes, the true promise may be in future applications on even larger data sets. Those investigations could expand understanding of platelet reactivity, which may spur discovery of novel antiplatelet drug targets. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.